Welcome to Dwight in Shining Armor, the Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Yakopo. Today, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 8, Invincible, written by Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams, directed by Sean Lambert, guest starring Danielle Bazzuti, Kanoa Goo, and Kyle Moore. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert, so if you haven't watched Season 2, Episode 8 yet, stop whatever you're doing, that magic needle in that insulating haystack isn't going anywhere, <laughs> and watch Invincible, either on BYU TV or at BYUtv.com slash Dwight. A quick recap. Greta and Baldrick catch a thief trying to burgle their house slash castle, but when they try to stop him, they are deflected by the Invincible robe which he wears. With Dwight, they journey to the Quiet Friars, the makers of such invincible robes, and they procure the weapons with which they can overcome the robe's invincibility, the shears and needle with which it was cut and sewn. Now the gang must trap the thief to discover his intentions. Perhaps they will find that something more sinister than thieving is about. Now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us are the creators and showrunners of Dwight and Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams and Leanne H. Adams. Hello, hello. And with us as well, the man under the invincibility cloak, Wenzo Thief himself, Kyle Moore. Hello. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for being here. And we have more guests by the wonders of late 20th century technology. (laughs) We have the vocal stylings of the director of photography, a.k.a. the cinematographer of Dwight and Shining Armor, the clear-eyed, full-hearted, blessed with the voice of an angel, Bank Johnson. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into it. Banked, what is a director of photography or a cinematographer? What is your job on set? Um, wow, still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I mean, you just hit the red button, right? <laughs> well, I would say that cinematographer is a co-director in the way that a contractor is a co designer and builder with an architect a director has a script and he has a vision and uh it's my job to kind of interpret uh his or her way of telling that story and we the tools that i have at my disposal are lights and cameras and lenses and steady cams and cranes and a whole battery of skilled technicians to help all that stuff work so that's what I do. I kind of coordinate all of those things uh, to put the director's vision on the screen. That's a that's a great clear answer. Let let's get into that a little I'm more. Trademarking that answer. <laughs> <laughs> so the first scene of this episode is Wenzo thief breaking in, beating up a boppet, using his cloak to deflect Greta's sword, and all of it's at night. So this is a night scene with action, two special effects because the doorknob, and a visual effect. Not to mention covering the actors all over the first floor of the house. So how do you go about prepping a scene like this? Well, luckily we've done about 80% of the work in the way we've designed the sets with the lighting and with uh, the walls and the doors and et cetera, et cetera. But then you say, okay, well, I, it's going to be night, so i got to have some light somewhere. And you start kind of planning out where you're going to light from. And then when it comes to the VFX, you know, usually we've had meetings or discussions about how we want interactive lighting to work with that. So, you know, I have to bring in the gaffer and the lighting board operator, and we're going to kind of figure out where the cues are. Do we want a lot of light? Do we want blue light? Do we want orange light? Et cetera, et cetera. So it's pretty complex, 
but luckily the people that we're working with, we kind of do this a lot. So even though it's haphazard and quick and on the fly, sometimes it's built on a ton of skill by the people I work with. So um, that's kind of the approach. And then when you start thinking about how you're going to cover it, you kind of have to look into the future that, oh, the camera's going to come here, here, and here. So you have to be able to put lights that aren't going to interrupt with all of that. And so there's a bit of strategy or strategery <laughs> uh, uh, with the lighting and you know the tools that we have to make the film. What I don't understand is how you have time to prep episodes when you're always shooting another episode. Usually, most shows will have two cameramen that will alternate, and on this one, we don't. Um, part of the way that that has worked in the past is the showrunners and the production designer and my best boys that go out on scouts. They all kind of we all know how each other works, mm. and so I think that we have a bit of a shorthand that allows us to work a little more efficiently than normal but it is tough i mean there's a lot of reading and a lot of cramming and trying to be prepared and it's tough but it's when you like the scripts and the characters and the people you work with Mm. it it somehow works yeah and and you do a beautiful job i mean the show looks amazing and it's and it's your hard work oh thanks (laughs) kyle so when you first read the sides for your audition for wenzo how did he strike you and what went into developing the character for you uh, man, well, when I first read it, I was just like super stoked because I mean, I I came up, you know, playing D and D and nice. I mean, uh, Holy Grail, Monty Python was like that was my favorite movie ever, and just like knights and fantasy and and was always something like I wanted to do, but. I don't really have, I mean, you know, when I call my agent, like, I mean, I really want to be like a cool rogue or a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's auditions for Lord of the Rings. Get me in there. You know, and yeah. just, you know they're basically like, well, you know, if a, if a bumbling chubby one comes along, <laughs> we'll get you in. <laughs> and it happened. <laughs> dream a dream. everyone. <laughs> did you have to get clearance for the bop it? We did actually. And, uh, for those maybe listeners at home who don't know what that is, if you're using something that another company owns, like a Boppet, uh, you can't just haphazardly use it in in your TV show because someone else owns it, and you have to you have to get a, a license to use it. And this is actually a, a little bit of a, a story. I'll make it the quick version. Uh, but we our kids had a Boppet for a long time, and it was just delightfully annoying in just the right way and always you know, like going off at the wrong time. So we thought if Winslow were to step on the bop it, it would just be so perfect. So we wrote it into the script and we were excited about it. And we actually thought, okay, we're good until really it was like 24 hours before oh, the no. production. We realized that there was a ball dropped and, and they basically it's sometimes really difficult to get um, the clearances from companies because they don't have a huge incentive to do this and there's a department but who knows they don't check their voicemail you know that sort of thing right. and so we're like we're going to have to change the bop and we're like oh no we are not we, we <laughs> love the bop so thankfully Leanne and I have done a lot of work uh, in the, the toy business a lot of toy commercials and so we, we happen to actually know some people at Hasbro who owns uh, bop it and so we uh, last minute called in a favor we're like can you approve this right now? Um, and luckily, we knew the right people that were able to do that, and so we got to keep our our Boppet joke. Great! I hope Boppet sales go through the roof. Oh, they probably they already have. Yeah, the Hasbro <laughs> stock is up seriously. You can't like, help. Boom. You can't help but it's, advertise. They, toys. When, yeah, the, when the stock analysis are like, oh, there's that Dwight and Shining Armor bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell me about the decision to use animated sequences in season two of this show. 
right. So, so initially, it, it came out of a of a budget necessity. Um, we wanted to go back in time. We wanted to see a medieval castle and medieval villages and characters and everything. And there was just no way we could build those things practically. And we should give a quick shout out to our production designer, Cody Bush, uh, yeah, previous, Cody. A previous guest on this podcast. Uh, it was it was basically up to him to go back and build another castle, not a sunken <laughs> castle, but a real castle. A and he's like, uh, how about we make this an animated sequence? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that that definitely was, was part of it. You know, for for schedule and budgetary reasons, uh, and then also uh, the the shooting schedule of this got compressed at the last moment. If we can make these animated, that will also save the sh- the shooting schedule. Uh, so for a lot of a lot of practical reasons, it worked. But then I think you know, artistically, it was a right choice. Yeah. Also. So once we knew that we had that available to us, that we could at any moment that we needed to go back in time by entering this animated world. Uh, then it, it actually became a great gift to our show, um, and we'll see more of it as we go forward. And we use the same animators that do our main titles, um, David Holacek, who does a beautiful job for us. So it feels appropriate to the show and familiar to the show, and it has a really distinctive style. So now that we have it, it feels like, hey, let's use this. We can flashback. We can see the past. That's so cool. I love that it's, you know, the creativity that comes out of the pressure cooker situation right. and you end up with something possibly even better than you thought you were going to. Sure. What, when you do the animated sequences, does David basically direct them? How does that work? That's a great question. So we write um, a, a script specifically for David that outlines everything that we want to see visually um, that, that's important to see. Um, and then like in the character of Wenzo, uh, he didn't know what Wenzo looked like. And so we had to send a photograph of Kyle, what the wardrobe looked like, all of the stuff that there is a, a practical reference for. We needed to send photographs to uh, to David so that he knew what he was drawing, um, including the look of the castle. And what what becomes um, very important is that Tovenar relic, yes. that box and the crypt that it's found in. All of that is super, super important. So we, um, it was interesting, David's first pass at it not knowing anything about it, you know, the box was massive. <laughs> it's like, oh, David, it's a tiny box. And so we had to just kind of uh, uh, work with him so that he understood the the storytelling. Um, and and so there's uh, there's definitely a back and forth there. He has a lot of visual references, but at the end of the day, it's up to him to decide what it's going to look like in the animation. That's so cool. So Banked, this show has plenty of exterior scenes quite often in the woods. How do you control the sun in these exterior scenes? Well, luckily we're in the forest a lot, so the way that the canopy of the forest works is it kind of breaks up that harsh sun for us, and then we just soften certain areas in addition by putting large scrims over the top of actors. Um, And then the other way we do it is we match the power of the sun, like with large lights. You know, we, we use like uh, lamps that are 18,000 watts, um, daylight colored, and they're very bright and powerful. And because they're so powerful, we can put them through really large fabric scrims, which softens it so they don't look like really hard lights, and they really help actors look great. Sometimes uh, big problems require big uh, solutions. In, in my quiver of tools, uh, we have cranes that hold 40 by 40 scrims, 40 feet by 40 feet scrims above the actors. And, you know, you got to have a lot of strength and power to hold that. So we need uh, things like, they're almost like little boom lifts or cherry pickers or 
petty bones, like cranes with arms that extend. To be honest with you, cinematography is a really great profession because you get to deal with all the big boy toys. You know, <laughs> everything you wanted to play with as a kid. You've got lights, you've got cameras, you've got cranes and bulldozers. Well, it's cool when your toys get delivered on like a flatbed semi-trailer. It's like, oh, that must be for banked. <laughs> so, Brian and Leanne, you introduce what I believe is a new piece of info uh, about the moments leading up to Baldrick casting the champion spell. The royal guards deserted Greta, and I don't think we've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, was it not enough that she lost her parents? <laughs> we were setting up a lot here, uh, and you're right, this is the first time we've uh, we've given that more insight in that critical moment. And we had to set up, uh, first of all, the dire circumstances that they were in. This uh, Obviously, this was the first and only time that Baldrick has resorted to something as serious as the champion spell. Um, and so if it was just another attack, it, it wouldn't have merited that. So we had to really set up the stakes. And we also, it, it was a character moment for Greta and especially Baldrick uh, to show what they've been through together and especially the loyalty that that Baldrick has. I mean, mm. everyone deserted their post. Everyone was was ditching the princess. It was it was that bad. It looked that horrible. And these are people who uh, signed up to be, you know, in the military. They're they're used to bad circumstances, but even those people uh, abandoned her in that moment, but Baldrick didn't. That's and, really interesting. So it's not just about putting this history on Greta. It's really showing the contrast that Baldrick had to everybody else. Exactly. And and it just amplifies the, obviously, we know there's a huge, you know, bond there, but this amplifies that uh, by showing that that Baldrick not only stuck with her through all of that, he came up with a solution that worked. Uh, so it, it's a big character moment for, like I say, especially for Baldrick. I love that. Also, incidentally, the royal guards. This is a setup. We're going to learn quite a bit more about them in uh, coming seasons. Ooh. So this was a, a a deliberate setup of characters we knew we were going places with. Very cool. Ooh, I'm excited. Okay. Um, so how did you choose to use ASL in the episode? So all right, we've got we've got quiet friars. <laughs> so they, as we're thinking about this, we're like. How then do they communicate? We loved the idea that they communicate through charades. We weren't didn't want to be specific using mm-hmm. uh, using ASL specifically. So so instead we just have that they um, communicate through these elaborate charades. And then the next question was, well, what should we have them say in charades? <laughs> uh, um, that then becomes the joy of it. So when we first meet Friar Siggy and he's asking like. Who are you running from? Fairies? <laughs> Trolls? Brain-eating cannibals? <laughs> and that's a really fun thing to play in charades. Um, so when we did the casting on this, the, all that the script says is that Friar Siggy um, gestures under this dialogue. And then we just give the dialogue. We gave no clues to the actors so that was all for him. what they should do. So our thought with this, and we've done this a few times, it's going to burn us one of these days, but it hasn't yet. But our thought was, let's just see what an actor can bring to us in this. Like, we're going to give you practically no hints on what we want, because we're not really sure we know. We'd love to see the the uh, creativity of a performer bring something to this. We did the same thing with uh, the character of Winnie, where all we said in the script was, she speaks in snarls and hisses. And then Catherine Lidstone came in and created this whole vocabulary of snarls and hisses to be uh, to be Winnie. So we start watching the tape for the, the audition for Friar Siggy, and and we're on the floor laughing, especially brain eating cannibals. Oh <laughs> that was gosh. the one that everyone had the most fun with. 
Well, it was it was it was so funny, but also so perfectly descriptive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then and then also watching him do it in conjunction with with Joel narrating. Essentially, yeah. it, it was. Well, we definitely knew when we found uh, when we found our guy who plays uh, Friar Siggy, and we and we saw his performance. It was all so very clear. We knew when he did fairies, that was clearly a fairy. And when he popped open that skull and ate the brains oh out gosh. of it, we knew what he was doing. It was just so crisp and clear. Uh, and and he. We actually, in the breakdown, asked for asked for actors who had some sort of training as mimes, mm. which is a very strange thing, I imagine, mm-hmm. to ask for who trains as a mime anymore. But this guy had, and you could tell. So, uh, so we knew we had found him, and plus he had such an interesting face and oh, and so shi- and, shiny and bright and yeah, sweet and warm. He was just exactly what we were looking for. He so. was great. I also brain eating cannibals, by the way, I think is the darkest thing that's been mentioned on this entire <laughs> show to this point. You, that line came out. I was like, "What?" I mean, Dwight yeah, says Dwight, it to uh-huh. what? And I was like, "Yeah, that's dark. <laughs> that is, is a scary thing in this world." So, so banked after Truthberry Cobbler, we now have Hexla's tent, which can work as a portal whenever the gang needs. It. The tent is always lit from within. So with an element like this, do you use the same kit each time so you light the tent the same way? Or does that change based on the room it's in and other variables that I know nothing about? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what show are we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, it's, see, for me, I wanted to, I, the tent needed to have some sort of soul to it. So we, so I figured it needed some sort of light and be, you know, coming out from it, like that emanating light. And to, to kind of justify my silly answer is, uh, depending on where it goes, that will determine the type of light that's there. I want it to contrast the environment that it's in. For instance, like in the in the front room, it's a very warm environment, so that light inside the tent is very kind of cool and bright. Um, and so that's kind of the pattern that I'm using right now. I, I don't know. Maybe if it was in a in a daylight environment, I don't, you see, I don't know yet. Uh, again, you have to be kind of inspired by the script that is written in, and 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 therefore it changes all the time. But I think it was successful. I was just watching it today, and I'm like, man, that's a really cool looking prop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. It, it looks magical without being overblown. You know, you don't have swirling yeah. things around it. It's just yeah. it's your lighting and the design of the tent itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's a great answer. Um, so Kyle, Wenzo is tricked into coming back to Burgle, which is one of my favorite words, by the way. <laughs> when the gang is there to catch him, and he finds what he's looking for, and does a wonderful <laughs> ya cha cha song and dance. Yeah. Did you invent this ya cha cha moment? Uh, no, Yacha Cha was in the script. Was it really? Oh, yeah. Yacha Cha, Yacha Cha! Yeah, I think I said it wrong the first time, and Brian freaked out. Said, it's Yacha Cha! Totally joking. No, uh, but it, no, it was in the script. Yeah, uh, the, the, there, there, there was definitely the dance. I think we probably tried a bunch of different ones, and then they, they, they took the best one. I think the only uh, stuff that I played that made it in is at the end when he leaves and he says uh, like a bat and he slips out and yeah. then you hear the crash. Yeah. I, I just saw this big, funny. big trash can full of swords. I was like, I'm <laughs> kicking that. That <laughs> <laughs> was fantastic. That's so funny. I, I think it speaks to um, your skill as an actor that when I saw the Yacha Cha dance, I felt like that. It was so organic. I felt yeah. like you had created that and it's always good when the actor marries with the writing that well. It's it's just a great moment and, yeah, and you love funny. the character yeah. so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. Uh, 
Um, all right, so Wenzo turns over the box he was trying to steal, and we see it has the mark of the Tovenars from the first episode of the season. Um, this is the very box Sir Aldred was looking for. Had you always planned that the reason the box was not in the secret chamber in the first episode of the season because Wenzo had stolen it? Yes. When we, uh, when we did Champion Part 2, um, and we were setting up that, that Sir Aldred's looking for something in the crypt... He doesn't find it there. We already anticipated that he was looking for a Tovenar relic um, and that that's going to be very, very important to our story. Uh, and and that it had been there once, but it was not there by the time he arrived. So we knew that much that there used to be a Tovenar relic in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we had a few episodes to kind of figure out um, who got to it first. Uh, and we, we loved the idea of this bumbling kind of thief that got to it first not not some you know sinister foe not some <laughs> evil warlock right. or something but just this kind of a doofus of a thief <laughs> happens to get this most valuable of all things um and that that then kind of propels our story in in a new direction so so it was it, the answer to your question is both yes and no we we knew that there had been a tovenar relic in there and someone got to it before sir aldred but at the time of shooting champion 2 we didn't know anything about wenzo thief yet um uh, we still uh were taking our time designing him i know this is a silly question but was it difficult to keep saying thieves instead of thieves yes every- <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I was like how did you get through that every take i think I, it took me a while to realize it was on purpose <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, uh, you wrote it wrong, and that's uh, just correcting it. <laughs> oh man, that that got me. I was watching it going like, "This is mental acrobatics to get these words out correctly." Let's listen to a clip. Bozo thief was hanged from thief tree. Thank all good thieves. Mm. Then why were you the one to steal this relic? Well, the client paid in advance, and and we had already drunk away the money, so the job fell to me. I scaled the castle walls like a spider and entered the castle with the grace of a cat. My instructions were to find a secret chamber deep in the bowels of the castle. I hid by day and I searched the castle by night with the stealth of a... of a... What's a real stealthy animal only comes out at night? A vampire. A wolf. A now. A raccoon. A lynx. Uh, uh, ah, yeah, that's right. So I'm stuck it around like a lynx, right? Until I found the secret chamber. I knew where to look. But though my flight was light-footed as a fox, the royal guards discovered me. No, 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 no. I knew if I was found with the relic, I would... Swing from thief tree? Yes. I'm not quite ready for that. So I hid my booty instead. Your what? You climbed to the window and leapt. Like a tiger? Out of the castle to escape into the woods. Then what happened? The quiet friars hid me from the royal guards. You stole a quiet friar's robe. Anyway, I was walking back to the castle when I unaccountably and uncontrollably fell sound asleep. The champion spell. When I awoke, your castle was in ruins. After months of tracking you like a panther, I finally found you here. And you broke in last night. Yes, and then you recognized me. And we went to the quiet friary and got the invincible shears and needle. And then Baldric called me and asked me to bring my tent. We set our trap. You broke in again. Guys, we were all here for this part. How did the joke with all the similes come about for Wenzo? <laughs> well, it, we, we really 
try and create a distinct uh, and unique voice for every character. Uh, and so as we were trying to find Winzo Thief's uh, voice, you know, we, we started off with, you know, I, I came in like a cat, <laughs> you know, that's that yeah. sort of thing. And, and we, we realized he's a lover of similes. He, he, <laughs> he really is. And, and, and he's also, you know, he comes from a long line of thieves and he, <laughs> he uh, you know, has a certain amount of familial pride in this and so he he wants to really hang a lantern on the fact that that he, that he's sneaky like a lot of different animals and you you can <laughs> you can tell that 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 he thinks a lot about this sort yeah, of stuff and it just confidence yeah it, it is he's a con man yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. there's thievery in his dialogue yeah it, there, it, there is for sure he's the best storyteller we've met yet mm. Um, and he knows how to spin a yarn and the way he does it by making himself look good. And then he does just love to compare himself to all kinds of sneaky animals. <laughs> I love it. I, I also like to think that that is his inner monologue while he's thieving. Like I'm doing this. Like, oh, yeah. yeah he, he, like you a can, lynx. Yeah. Like he, a spider. Just like the ya-cha-cha moment. He's probably humming his own little theme music. So, Banked, this is a question about Hexla's chambers when she has candles lit. Also, at the end of this episode when Mr. Dale has the Tovenar box at his desk and he has the desk lamp, how do you choose when to practically light a scene versus using instruments that aren't organic to the scene? Oh, I would think I default to always try to do it practically. Um, And yet, you know, you can't make a movie with practical lights. So you have to kind of just take those cues and add to them. Um, even though uh, there was only one light, I think, on uh, Mr. Dale's desk, I think I probably had 20 lights working on that scene. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a bit of a magic trick. Um, you're trying to make something feel like what's actually there. And so that that's kind of like the big thing of cinematography. You don't want to overpower it with 1950s-style hard lighting, mm. you know, so that it looks lit, because you don't evoke the mood the same way. There's something about one light on a table that just kind of, we all know what that feels like. It's a little spooky, and it's a little, you want to get in close and see what he's doing. So, um you know, in Hexalus Salon in the back room also, it it wants to feel intriguing and mysterious and kind of what you think it should look like in a, some sort of Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, medieval cavern back there. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a lot of choice, but thankfully it's a cool not having a lot of choice. It looks great. Yeah, it does look great. That's, that's a really good answer. So Kyle, is there a bit of... Mr. Burns in your voice for Wenzo because I thought I heard that in the scene where you're kind of like skipping across the stream deciding on last names oh no I mean I guess I just have a little Burns in me uh, <laughs> no I, I will say uh, so like sitting in the audition room I uh, for this part I had a Cockney accent uh, f- at first and everybody yeah, does yeah right <laughs> really and, and then I was sitting there like had it all prepared in this like kind of Cockney accent you know he's like a cat <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I saw the sign no accents and I was like oh 
no. <laughs> now <laughs> like, what? As I'm walking in, I'm like, all right. Bloody brighter. Gonna, you know? oh. yeah, but I, I, I started when I was 13 doing Shakespeare in the Park. So my first acting was, was RP. Um, so I just kind of melded that with my natural voice mm-hmm. t- to get the comedy out of it. Kyle skipping across the stream. All of that was improvised. Uh, he did really? on the day. The, trying to decide what else he could be besides Kyle. Oh, man. The, we could have done that Winslow attorney at law. Yeah. <laughs> Winslow attorney at law was fantastic. Yeah, Wenzel, that was so funny. Yeah. Wenzel we, school marm yeah. was in there. Yeah. <laughs> Wenzel father uh, was a, wait, well, there was a couple of them that were really, was, uh, that didn't make it in, but they, I could have done that all day. Oh, I think yeah. there was Wenzo single father. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why that didn't make it in. That's so funny. Um, all right, so Sir Aldred, played by Kanoa Goo, returns. Um, he wants the relic he commissioned Wenzo to steal. He's not given up. When do you decide in designing seasons when to return to the show's mythological through line. Okay, so we um, we knew from the very beginning that our story is um, 60 episodes told in two parts. Mm-hmm. That's how we've designed it from day one. So um, the first three seasons, the first 30 episodes are part one, the Tovenars. This is how we think of it. It's not necessarily how it's promoted to the world, mm-hmm. but... Uh, so we're right now in in this episode, a little more than midway through the the this part one, the Tovenars. Right. Um, so we always planned it to be a slow burn that would build in momentum. So um, season season one has only two episodes that have anything to do with the Tovenar storyline. Mm-hmm. Season two has four episodes that nudge that storyline along just a little bit. Right. And then season three that we'll all see next year has six episodes yes. that so we have this this we're able to intersperse this serialized element but keep the episodic feel of the show. And it's and, growing, it's escalating. It, it is. And part of that was subterfuge on, on our, <laughs> our part. Originally the network wanted an episodic show. Uh, and we I always saw this as a serialized show. And so we played their game. <laughs> and, and, you know, little by little, we were sneaking in the serialized elements, which to their, you know, credit, they they loved also and they were happy to let us get away with it. But uh, so so part of it is to keep the story at a, at a nice, you know, pace for its burn. And part of it was us convincing the network, like, no, this is going to be cool. And again, you know, thankfully, they, they saw it the way we did also. And, and so we were just sneaking in those, those serialized elements. It's Winnie and then Champion do over part. One champion mm-hmm. part one, yes, correct. Yeah, so we introduced the dark, the dark realm. realm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. very good. Yeah. Oh, I he remember. <laughs> I caught on. Well, it's a big moment, it's and all because all of a sudden we have that yes. team saying, yep. like, we're not going anywhere, we yep. have to deal we with this. We have to deal with whoever's coming to this dark realm. So, mm-hmm. so yes, the dark realm, and then champion when we introduce obviously our first Tovenar, Sir Aldred. Yes, but that's it. Otherwise, you would never suspect that we had a, a, a through story building um, but and then in season two you'll see more and in season three you'll see a lot yeah it's also fun that that actually is the first episode you shot after the pilot right. was a through line episode yeah it's true yeah. yeah well that wraps it up for season two episode eight of Dwight and Shining Armor the Sunken Kingdom the behind the scenes podcast about everything Dwight thank you Brian thank you Leanne thank, thank you. you thank you Kyle thank you and thank you Banked thanks for having me it's a pleasure uh, you can follow Brian on Instagram at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Leanne at Leanne H. Adams. You can follow Banked at Banktsy. That's B-E-N-G-T-S-Y. You can follow Kyle Moore at Kyle Moore 13 and that's Moore with one O. You can follow the show at Dwight and Shining Armor, and you can follow me at the Josh Breslow. 
tune in again next week for season two, episode nine, Agnet. I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. Go on an adventure today. It might change your life. <laughs>